You are listening to The Path Podcast on Mountain Bike Radio. Welcome to another episode of The Path Podcast. Uh, we are recording uh, from uh, my house again here. And unfortunately, we don't have Ock with us tonight. So it's just going to be uh, me and Tani bringing you all the uh, mountain bike talk tonight. Miss you, buddy. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Ock has uh, some uh, fatherly duties. I think he has a open house with the, with the kids tonight. So uh, we uh, wish him all the fun with that. We should join Ock in keeping the positive spin that it is fortunate that he has fatherly duties. It's very, very fortunate. Very fortunate. Unfortunate that he's not here, but fortunate he has fatherly duties. Um, so I think uh, tonight, Tani is going to start us out with uh, some shop news. Yeah. Um, so I want to start out by thanking everyone who came out to our night at Over the Hump last night, and particularly those of you who came dressed in your 80s garb your best mullets, and so forth. There was some good cheering on the course. I can, uh, I, I, I raced that one, So, uh, but the, uh, the cheers along the course were second to none. I stayed back at the shop and held down the fort so Megan and the team could go out and do it, have fun, and from what I hear, they mission accomplished. They had some fun. Yeah, I, I can attest to that. Um, other shop news, um, Bikes and Beers is coming up May 29th. Meet at the Tustin shop. Get there a little before nine, and we'll roll out around nine. It's a big, big group ride that splinters into small group rides and reconvenes at the Tustin Brewing Company for revelry. And they give us a good deal on pitchers of beer and pizzas. And um, it's like a long-standing annual tradition. Yeah, and if if there's any local riders that are, especially if you're kind of new to the sport or you're just starting out. Come and come to this ride, and you're going to get to meet a good chunk of the Orange County mountain bikers in the area. Yeah, particularly if you are kind of keen on the beer scene. Yes, yes, for Maybe sure. Maybe if you're a seasoned beer drinker, but a new mountain biker. <laughs> seasoned beer drinker, new mountain biker, and uh, yeah. A, but it's weird. It's kind of family-friendly, too. I, yes. Um, there's always families and kids. Um it's one of those, it's like when the whole family gets together kind of rides. Yeah. I would say this might be a little bit more of the uh, uh, baggy shorts mountain bike crowd as opposed to maybe maybe not as much the Liker crew, but the Liker crew is definitely welcome as well. It seems like there's always like a unspoken Aloha shirt contest going on. Nice. Um, yep. Maybe some sombreros. Yeah. Um, you never know. It's a kind of a weird fashion show critical mass bike ride party with with some good trails too with some good trails um so yeah may 29th um the actual roll date as yet or actual roll time is yet to be determined it's always a kind of a last second thing but uh about nine o'clock and uh also in new news we launch our gravity sale um may 20th which for us right now that's tomorrow and it goes through May 29th. This is kind of in celebration of the opening of Summit. And um, basically, you know, goggles, most of our goggles, I believe, will be 20% off. Full-face helmets will be 20% off. 
discounts on downhill bikes and bikes with more than with six inches or more of travel, dual ply tires, basically promo uh, body armor, knee pads and elbow pads, all the stuff you need to gear up for, a, for summer downhilling. We're going to have promotional pricing on that stuff from May 20th to May 29th. You know, just a little side note of something that I thought of because I um, kind of have a little bit of experience in this space, but if um, there's a lot of goggle companies out there right now that um, have injection molded lenses versus stamp lenses. So if, uh, if you have old goggles, definitely go into the shop and check out some of the brands that have um, polycarbonate injection molded lenses. And you'll be really surprised at how clear those goggles are versus the stamped Lexan goggles. How do I tell the difference? Um, the easy way, I mean, two, two of them that I know for sure is, um, uh, the Fox air defense goggle is, uh, is one that's, um, has an injection molded lens and the Oakley air brake, um, so if the lens is kind of floppy and flexible, it's, it's not what you're talking about. Correct. So if you take, if you take the lens out of a goggle and it goes flat and it's, or a replacement lens is flat, that's a stamped lens. And there's no optical correction in it. But if the lens is curved in the package, um, and also if the edge looks like it's been machine cut, then that's that's an injection molded um, lens. Um, I wanted some of the Smith goggles are still stamp lenses, but they're formed afterwards. I'm probably getting a little deep into goggle technology for some. What about people. the 100? percent I think those are stamped as well. I think most of those are stamped. Um, so, so I tried those Airbrake MXs after you you told me how awesome they are, and I I did notice the the lens quality, but the helmet fit was problematic to the point where I went back to stamped lenses. Yeah, so that's one thing as far as the shape of the goggle. Um, you got to watch out for. I mean, that's with any goggle, you got to see how it's going to fit with your helmet. But if it's between two two models that are very similar. Um, those molded lenses are are really nice for for just having clear optics. You know, is the goggles flex in those? I noticed lenses? that the optics were really good. Yeah, it, I was running into a situation where the top of the helmet was pushing the goggles down a little bit, not to where it really obstructed my normal range of vision, but where it obstructed my if I was looking, say, up like a yeah. cyclist does, right? Kind of like how and you know, there's. Lots of examples of cycling products that that are answers to this problem where cyclists are always looking up, you know. We're, we need that. We need that up range of vision. Yeah, and that's something that you're you're definitely going to see um you're definitely going to see in a lot of the new higher end bike riding optics is you're gonna see a higher upper portion of the goggle or the or the glass so that as you lean forward you you have more lens to look through. I like it. Um yeah, I just wanted to confirm that one of the other ones that I personally know for sure that is um an injection mold lens is the Fox Air Defense goggle. There's an airspace and an air defense. It's the air defense. That's the injection molded lens. We'll have to check those out. So that's all I've got for shop news. So tell us more about Over the Hump yesterday. You told me it was a little less climbing than previous years. Uh, yeah. So there's, uh, I think we talked about it a little bit before, is that, um, you know, Irvine Lake, because of the low water levels in Southern California, is closed for their regular business, which is fishing. Um, so that I think it's air- more complicated than that, but we'll just call it low water levels. <laughs> yeah, roughly low water levels. And politics. Politics. And drownings. <laughs> um. 
So uh, the the new race venue is deeper into that kind of general area. And the course, I would say the, the laps felt relatively shorter with a little less climbing, but a little bit more up and down. Um, I, I had a really good time. Um, I was pretty happy. I, I raced sport class and I, I felt pretty strong. Um, and, uh, raced with a bunch of coworkers and, and had a good time. Uh, the, the course was really, really loose. This was one of the things I noticed. It was a lot of like silty dirt over really hard packed. Um, and I was running the, uh, Maxis icon tires on, on my highball. And I noticed I was really having a tough time getting some good grip. So actually, after the race, I ordered some Schwalbe Rocket Rons, which I think have a little bit sharper knob and maybe a little bit softer rubber. Um, so I'm looking forward to trying those. I'm probably going to try to hit the race again next week and uh, see if those tires hook up a little bit in that um, hard pack through through the dust. You know, and I I think a lot of guys run a really small knob when it gets hard packed, but I think sometimes with that silty layer. You, got to get something that kind of cuts through and gets down to the hard pack and, and is still really, um, you know, kind of a soft rubber. Yeah. That, or, you know, it's like maybe you go narrower and try to cut through or you go wider and try to float on top. Like that's the kind of conundrum maybe that, sometimes too. That could be the case. Um, I like the, that pizza cutter style traction. Yeah. That, It'd be interesting to take a couple of laps on a cyclocross bike and see if you can jam the corners a little bit harder if it's like cutting through the dust or the silt a little bit better. And then um, just put a 27 and a half plus on and try the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're so up in the air these days. Yep. Uh, but it was certainly fun. A um, lot of racers on course. I mean, I don't know what the number is, but I think the number I have in mind is typically they're having like 400 plus people out there. I heard 500. Okay. Racers. And I heard, you know, nearly a thousand spectators. That, that sounds about right. It was definitely, definitely, uh, crowded, um, on course, uh, never, never by, I was never by myself on the course, always around other, other racers, other classes. As the race progressed, we started to lap the beginners. Um, I raced just the regular sport class, um, and there's so many fast racers out there that, you know, so depending on the race, sometimes I'll race expert, sometimes I'll race sport. This one, there's so many fast people out there. Um, I still got fifth in sport and there's some really fast guys out there, even, even in the sport class. Um, but one thing I would say, if you're going to race over the hump is get real comfortable being around a lot of people the, the whole time. Uh, Tani and I, we did a short ride before this podcast and we were kind of talking about it. Um, I wouldn't say you don't have, don't get comfortable passing aggressively, but authoritatively and efficiently. You got to learn to pass people. Is uh, get it done quick, get it done clean. Uh, don't lollygag. Get around people quick. Um, I mean, you don't want to go throwing elbows or or boxing people out in corners, but you definitely want to get by quickly. You and, want it to and be efficiently. done and over, but you don't want a red line while you do it. You don't want to redline, and you also don't want to come across as a dick. <laughs> well, maybe it depends. It depends. There was a, no, you don't. There was a couple of people that were throwing elbows out a little bit, and I threw some elbows back at them. But it's a healthy competition. <laughs> there you go. So uh, keep a smile on your face. Yep. Uh, Fifth is actually pretty impressive. I know it's just sport and everything, but. 
there's some wattage out there. Th- that's true. I there there are some fast guys out there, and it's um, it was a good course though. I think it suited me. If if I felt pretty pretty strong in a lot of the a lot of the course, a lot of the uphills, I was a, they were short enough. I was able to stand up, and that's always you always feel like a rock star when you're standing and climbing in a cross country yeah, race. It. And you rode your highball. Uh, yep, I rode my highball. Felt great. Um, I recently put some uh, Shimano XT brakes on. I had some really old, uh, avid, um, uh, the, the juicy carbon, juicy ultimate carbons. Ooh, really old ones. Yeah, yeah. I was really glad to get those off the bike, and so now I've got some some XTs on there that I can totally trust and not going to have any problems with it. I was kind of procrastinating putting those new XTs on that bike because the highball is internal uh, brake routed. And so, uh, but finally this last weekend I had, uh, I had some time to sit down and, and do, uh, do the hydraulic work properly. You'll, you'll find my, my maintenance habits whenever I have to do any hydraulic work, I really procrastinate because <laughs> I, I hate doing hydraulic work, whether it's suspension or, or brakes. Uh, I was it's kind of weird because once you do it, it's never that bad, but there is kind of that psychological hurdle. Yep, exactly. It's a uh, lot of setup too. Yep, just getting all the right little tools out and. Yeah, you want to get everything in reach before you start getting to the point where you're like holding a line. You don't want to let it go, and the tools just out of reach that you need to take the next step. So you got to think through all the steps, have all the tools laid out and ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, now that you've got those Avid brakes off your bike and the XTs on there, the um, those hydraulic moments are going to be a lot less painful. Yes, yes, that's that's for sure. Um, but yeah, really happy to to have those on the bike. Um, and then next week, I'll I'll throw those new Rocket Rons on there and and see if those kind of dig in that that little powdery over hard pack a little better because um, I did. I did get a little sloppy and leaned into one corner and almost slipped the front out and had to slap a foot down way harder than I would have liked to. And um, it was it was a close one, but I almost I almost washed out a corner. And so that's where I was like, oh, all right, I'm going to try a different tire because these icons are just not hooking up through the through the hard pack dust. Obviously, your equipment let you down. <laughs> clearly the tires, clearly the tires. <laughs> uh, but past that, yeah, bike work great. I was really happy with it. It. You know, racing a hardtail out there is always a, a good choice. I think, um, you know, it's rough enough that I don't think a cyclocross bike would give you an advantage. Um, and a full, there's enough flat, hard parts where you're like laying down power, some smooth fire road climbs. That the hardtail, it's really nice to get that efficiency where you really feel the power get into the rear wheel. And uh, so, I had a good time with that. Love it. Yeah, Matt and Rich and the rest of the team over at Over the Hump. Um, Susan, Suzanne, they all do a great job. Really, really top notch. Yes, yes. Um, I think they actually raffled off a a full Shimano like XTR Di2 kit or something like that. Nice. That would that would have been. I did not win it, but I would have been stoked to have won it. That wouldn't make me mad. <laughs> no, not at all. So yeah. Um. All right. So that kind of the update on over the hump this week uh let's see um one of the things we we talked about um going over a little bit and this is something that some of the listeners might have um 
might be curious about is basically kind of the origins of the shop. You know, like you you guys all know that this this podcast is um, you know kind of an extension of the Path Bike Shop. Um, Tani is the you know founder and owner of the Path Bike Shop, and uh, I think everybody at some point is always curious like what that life is like. How does a bike shop get started? We probably all had that thought cross our mind from time to time of like, man, I'd really love to own my own bike shop, especially those of us that visit them a lot and, and uh, really like the lifestyle. And so tonight we want to spend a little time and I was basically more or less going to kind of interview Tani and, and have him kind of tell us about the, the origins of the shop and kind of how it got started. Um, so to start, I was wondering if you could give us a little background on kind of what what were the jobs you had kind of leading up to the to starting the shop and maybe some of the things you saw to make you kind of want to start your own bike shop? Yeah. So my first job, um, well, I had a paper route, paper route, <laughs> and uh, Andrew from Shimano America, he's, he's, he's an executive at Shimano America. He and I, um, had the same paper route at different times. And, uh, we'd also sell the Orange County register door to door when I was 11 years old. And then we would, I also had a job with a couple of, actually a friend of mine and I, we started a business and we'd go door to door and offer to wash people's cars because we were trying to get enough money to get wood to build a skateboard ramp. A little bit of the entrepreneurial spirit. So that was the spirit, beginning really. of the entrepreneurial spirit around 12 years, 11, 12 years old. Yeah. Um, my fir- All my kind of clock-in jobs were in food service. So at 14 years old, prepubescent, I was kind of a late bloomer. I got promoted to shift manager at Togo's. I was about like 4'10 and had a squeaky voice and no hair under my arms and I had a key to the place and there was like 35-year-old dishwasher dude so I was the boss of. It was weird. <laughs> and uh, Good sandwiches, though. Good sandwiches. It was the corporate flagship store, so the sandwiches were like some of the better to- – like some Togos are better than others. Now, uh, they're franchised, right? Yeah. Yeah. This wasn't a franchise. This was a corporate-owned – like the corporate offices were upstairs. Ah, okay. It's like it's like the um, the company showroom store. Basically, yeah. And they, oh, it was crazy. They would have these sandwich-making contests, and the winner would get a golden knife. I never won it. I mean, this was like regional. Oh, it wow. Was, it was crazy. And yet – they're a pretty weird company. They'd have secret shoppers that would come in and they would weigh the meat on each sandwich and you had to hit all these points. It was pretty crazy. Oh, wow. But uh, So after that, I was a cook at Roma d'Italia in Old Town Tustin and a busboy. And then I was a manager of Renaissance Coffee for a while. And uh, then I got a job at um, the bike source of Irvine. Do you I remember re- that place? I remember that shop. Yeah, my um so um I was pretty young at the time but my my mom worked in Irvine and I remember calling the bike source having them put like a special tire aside and then talking my mom into dropping by the shop on her way home from work to pick up my tire. <laughs> so before I ever worked there, I was kind of like the ultimate nightmare customer there for one for one episode. I got my nice. first pair of SPD pedals there. Oh, okay. They were those old look purple things with a huge platform. Yeah. Like, you know, 1994 or something. The ones that like Tinker Juarez still runs. No, they're the Tinker Juarez model. Yeah. (laughs) So 
And they had them on crazy close. So the bike source was like the original, like tiny print mail order place with a page full of products and tiny print and, and special prices. Yep. But I went into their retail outlet and I bought these pedals and it was my first time clipping in. And there was like a little bit of up and down play, you know, how on an SPD, sometimes it's not a perfect engagement. Yeah, it depends on it depends heavily on the shoe yeah, and all that stuff. All kinds of stuff. And I went in, I was like, Well, they're like it's normal. I was like, Well, it's not doing that on the other pedal. <laughs> you know, like total nightmare. And like basically Jim told me that he wasn't gonna help me and I kinda got in touch. I mean, I was young. I d I don't know. I kinda got a little in touch. We I he still hired me later, so it couldn't have been too bad, but it nope. was kinda I'm a little bit ashamed that I acted like like an entitled customer a little bit. But Anyway, so worked there, worked at the Tustin Brewing Company um, as a bartender and manager, and it was while I was working there that I opened the path. And Jason, the owner of the Tustin Brewing Company, was really supportive, and you know he didn't mind that I would sell bikes while I was working behind the bar to customers at the Tustin Brewing Company, as long <laughs> nice. as the, as long as I sold them lots of beer and they came back and bought more too, you know. Nice. But, so just so people know the the. The path is probably about two miles from the Tustin. Yeah. Company. It's pretty close. Yeah, maybe 10 pedal strokes if you pedal real hard and then coast. Yeah. <laughs> it's relatively yeah, no, it's, close. It's about two miles. And uh, so at first I was working both jobs for three years. And um, I literally was recruiting new bike customers behind the bar and recruiting new beer customers at the bike shop too. <laughs> and, nice. Um, it was a crazy time. It was before my kids moved in with me. They still lived with my ex-wife, Paulina and Kimmy, who some of our listeners have, have met as cashiers at the shop. And uh, and just a, the opening year of the shop, even when you were working part-time, was 98? 98. So the shop opened in 1998, at which time our hours were like Tuesday through Saturday from 11 to 4 or something because I had to close the store and then go be a bartender at the brewery. Oh, okay. And there was a sign on the window that said I'd make an appointment with you if you wanted to do business outside of those hours. And and it was 500 square feet. So it, basically, I um, for three years, I did both jobs. And um, it was intense. Yeah, I imagine so. I actually didn't even realize because I've known you for a while. I didn't know you worked both jobs for up until two thousand one, and managed to maintain a pretty healthy nightlife. Nice. <laughs> I, I was young and wild, so a typical day back then would be um, maybe go into the bike shop a little early, fix some bikes. Maybe go on a bike ride in the morning. Go into the bike shop a little early, fix some bikes. Shop opens at eleven. Work at the shop until four. Go work at the bar from say five thirty to eleven thirty, and then maybe hang out with the crew from the bar until three a.m. and then start all over again. Nice, nice. Maybe seven days a week. Who knows how many beers a week? <laughs> a lot, right? A lot, a lot. Now during this time, did you? I because I know when I worked at the shop, I worked in the shop the summer of two thousand three, um, and you were living in the house literally like a stone throw from the shop. It was right behind the shop. Oh yeah. Those were great days. The B street house. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, and Carl was living there too, who was the original employee of the path employee number one. Right. So, I mean, part of what I, I opened the path, um, on a very low commitment with kind of an idea that I just wanted to see what it would be like and see if, it, see if there would be a market for it. 
And there was this really positive response where um, we started really small. And for the first probably six years, we just couldn't build enough to meet the, the demand for what we were doing. Um, so about six months in, Carl came on board and Adam came on a little after that. And those early days, the camaraderie was just amazing. Yeah. Um, we all, we all worked really closely together. We all did everything and, um, we didn't have a lot of systems to work with and we were still building kind of the systems of the path and it was, it was just us. We were, I, I remember now this, when I worked there, I remember we were still pricing stuff. The pricing gun was a Sharpie marker, and everything was even dollars just written on the box with a Sharpie marker. I was I was cleaning out our warehouse the other day, and I found a few old items with prices written in Sharpie, and I almost teared up. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was a big day when we graduated to like a price gun, which now to us is really kind of the dark ages because in 2011 we went to barcodes and we have, you know, a label maker that prints out a barcode price tag now. Right. And communicates with the inventory system and all that. Yeah. Now in the early days, now a lot of, a lot of retail businesses have inventory systems. The cost of entry is relatively low to those systems. But back then was it, it was really just like you knew what you had, right? We tried to know what we had (laughs) at first. We, we knew what we had. Because we had two forks, three headsets, two <laughs> wheels, a frame, <laughs> right. six tires. Pretty quickly, it grew way beyond my ability to know what we had. And within by, by the fifth year, there were sometimes customers pointing stuff out to me that we had that I had forgotten we had, or I didn't realize that someone else had ordered and had come in. Or yeah, right. it's, it's a we. So we started kind of on this idea that we were going to do mostly special orders and that okay. we we're going to keep our inventory lean and we were going to take advantage of kind of like next day availability. Through the through a lot of the common distributors? Yeah, and- yeah. And this was at a time when mail order had had its first – some people might know this, some people might not, but there was work – some people – there was kind of a dark ages of bicycle retail after mail orders, after the first wave of mail order before it was internet, when it was kind of ads and magazines. Yeah. And so people have been around the bike industry or been in bikes and ridden bikes for a long time. Remembers all these ads and mountain bike action. It looked like the phone book. Like, and it was just the full parts lists. So shops like the bike source and, and super go had put, a lot of the local mom and pop type shops and traditional shops out of business. Okay. And there wasn't, I think it did kind of create an opening for the path. Right. Not a great opening because it, part of the reason they were out of business is because it's a rough business. Yeah. And the, and those, those mail order places had really eroded the, the ability to make any sort of money on the stuff. Right. So, you know, we, we in the early days we were competing with SuperGo a lot, and SuperGo since has been purchased by Performance, and the way the pricing structure in the industry has changed since then. But I remember when we would buy an XT cassette from Shimano for I want to say about thirty eight bucks. MSRP was you know sixty or so, and SuperGo had it for thirty six bucks. Right. And it was just like, how do you make a living in that, you know? I, I remember those days because I, I used to live in Huntington Beach, which was near the Fountain Valley uh, Supergo. 
and uh, they would repackage all their stuff because they some they oh, were getting yeah. them different ways. They were chop shopping bikes. They were, they were chop doing shopping grain. bikes. Who knows uh, all the different channels they were going through to make right. that happen? And just so people know, if listeners aren't familiar, chop shopping bikes is when the bike. The stores would buy the bike, strip them, sell the parts and the frames all separately. So well, typically it's when there's a, a brand uh, – say there's a model that a manufacturer is overstocked on and that manufacturer is willing to sell those at a discount. And then if a, if, if, a, if a powerful retailer who has the resources to do so recognizes that the price that they can buy that frame for would be a good price even without the frame, then they'll buy a bunch of them take them all apart. It doesn't matter what they get for the frame at that point. They can sell the frame for whatever they can get for it. Right. And uh, they had like a big shrink wrap operation and they would re-shrink wrap it and put their own label on it. Yeah. Pretty crafty. Yep. So, um, actually when, when Shimano changed how they managed their pricing structure and that, that, the playing field became a little more level. That was a big deal for us. That really helped made a big difference. Right. And ultimately Supergo and a lot of these mail order shops that had, um, that had created this kind of sea change in the industry. A lot of them went away or got bought by performance or had to evolve into something new with internet. Right. Which is kind of the new, the new thing. Well, it's not new anymore. Well, it's it's coming back around full circle with and now with a new powerful force of the whole English the chain reaction phenomenon. International retail marketplace. Yeah. For sure. So Yeah. So we started in 500 square feet. I uh I I just, I remember just I remember these, you know, getting home at like Getting home late at night after you know fifteen hours of work between the two business between the two jobs and and maybe having done that for ten or twenty days straight and just thinking like it, wondering if I'd be able to remember the feeling in the future and I have to say thankfully I don't think I really do remember the feeling <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember I remember trying to hang on to that feeling and one and thinking like you have to remember what you put into this you know yeah. so that you don't but. Thankfully, that that pain's faded away a little bit. That that's good. <laughs> you know, it. I mean, for me, that's surprising. Here, like I said, I didn't realize you spent three years working both businesses. I mean, that's that's a pretty solid commitment. Um, I'm kind of curious what what were some of the like tipping point factors of like now I can go full time at at the Path Bike Shop. Um. For me, probably I, I waited a little longer than I maybe could have or should have, but we were really, really underfinanced. I started the shop on about a fifteen thousand dollar budget, including my credit cards, and uh, we really never got recapitalized. So um, that was a factor. It was really just when I felt like I could afford to not when I felt like I could afford to pay my child support and my rent <laughs> and uh, eat off of off of what I could make from the path. It was that and it was also kind of a realization that um maybe the opportunity that I was leaving on the table when I left to go work at the brew comp- the brew ha- at Tustin Brewing Company was perhaps 
worth think, considering, um, you know, the lost opportunity. Right. And I think I was, that, that turned out to be true. We were in a really strong growth cycle and we were still growing, you know, 30, 40% a year. And, uh, at, at, in some of the early days, the business was growing so fast that I had to continue to work at the brewing company to pay for the things we needed to grow. Just, just funding the inventory. Yeah. I didn't want to take money out to pay, to pay myself because the growing business needed the money so bad to grow. And it was so clear that pretty much there was this ongoing sense for about the first, at least the first eight years of any, if we build it, they'll come, you know, just like, as 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 good and big and and deep as we can build it and order it and stock it, then it'll pay off. Was kind of the sense for a long time. We right. were always just for many many years. It seemed like the challenge was meeting demand, not creating demand. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I remember those days, and I think there weren't there definitely weren't a lot of core enthusiast shops out there, and I think the path really. F- at the time really fit that niche. Cause there was, you know, there was performance and there was super go and super go, like they had parts if you knew what you were looking for. But as far as, you know, good customer service and building really high end bikes or really cool bikes or knowing what was, what was uh, the hot setup. It, it really wasn't that it was a little hit and miss on that. I think. Yeah. Um, you maybe could have your guy that you knew there who was a real rider. Right. Um, and some of those guys are still working in retail around here too. But um, yeah, I think, you know, the bike beat had gone out of business and they were the one, they were the shop that if there's a shop that the path is in any way modeled after, I'd say it's probably the bike beat. Maybe um, to some degree, um, VeloPro in Santa Barbara were, were shops that I'd been somewhat like kind of impressed with. Yeah. Um, but um yeah, the the look, you know, going into opening the shop, part of the reason I did it is because I had been a bunch of my, I had gotten a bunch of my friends into mountain biking. So I had helped maybe four or five friends buy mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I I was that expert buddy, you know, that the yeah. bike shop employees hate <laughs> that would come in and like, Yep. You know, make sure their friend gets a bike that fits them and make sure they get SLX or, or Dior. Back then, there was no Dior. It was like, right. you want that SLX. Right. At least. Or, or it was LX. L- LX back yeah. then. Yeah, there was no, it wasn't SLX. It was LX. So, so I had this idea. I was kind of like, I had sold some bikes, just yeah. not for, not anywhere that I had worked. So, yeah. that's, that's when I decided I was going to try working at the, the bike source and see if I liked it. And, and I did like it. And that, and that's what kind of got me saving up to open a bike shop while I worked at the Tustin Brewing Company. Now the the location of the path is definitely not definitely not um I guess a typical retail space. You know, it's kind of like almost a little business building with multiple units. Before we were in there it was a used bookstore and I frequented okay. that used bookstore and that's part of I had kind of romanticized that building because I, I had frequented it. Okay. And um, I did know from the beginning that the f- 5 freeway and the 55 freeway were going to be good things for us. And, and being nestled right there between them is a good thing. And not it's not just that it's right there. It's that you don't have to make a lot of turns. 
you know, people in Orange County will drive on the freeway for as long as it takes without batting an eyelash. But, like, put them on surface streets in an area they're not familiar with and make them make, like, three turns and a U-turn, and they're going to flip out. <laughs> that, that's kind of true. So I knew that the, the freeway convenience and the freeway access was good and the old town feel and the safe, safe space to test ride a bike. The neighborhood is a really nice area to test ride a bike, and it feels good to ride a bike through the kind of old tree-lined streets. Yeah. And uh, to this day, I'm often surprised at bike shops existing in places that are just horrible places to test ride a bike, you know, where there's no yeah. – you know, there's busy streets and busy parking lots and nowhere to really ride a bike safely or calmly. But, yeah. No, that that makes sense because it the the shops backed up to like a little neighborhood with some quiet residential streets behind it. Yeah, and also um, it's really important too. The rent is a lot lower than traditional retail, right? Because you're you're not competing for a space that's going to be like a a you know a PetSmart or a you know a a Subway location or something. It's it's gonna it's gonna be a small independent business that's gonna be in that area, so you're not gunning for really high We're a destination traffic. business. Yeah. Foot traffic is okay with us, but it's often actually it's our best chance to disappoint a customer and our best chance to get stolen from and just our best chance to have someone come in who isn't really looking for what we offer and be disappointed. Yeah. Um, we're definitely a destination and because of the way the world of bicycle retail works, we definitely can't, can't pay the normal price per foot for retails, you know? Right. I think Irvine company charges between 10 and 20 bucks a foot plus triple nets and sometimes even plus a percentage of your, of your profits or sales. I mean, that's insane. Um, yeah, I'm not familiar with the, I don't really have a frame of reference on the numbers, but I mean, a, a rental company, basically, if you're renting a business space and they want a piece of, of your sales, that's that sounds kind of rough. Yeah, it w- it's rough. When it, it, I mean, retail space can be really high-priced around here. So, you know, we're paying, you know, between a buck and two bucks a foot, and it's a lot more comfortable, and, and it, it's what we need to exist. Right. Well, and... and uh, I mean that's something I think that's a pretty common common theme in the bike industry in general is you do it because you love it you don't do it to get rich. Oh there's tons of jokes about it. Yeah. What's the fastest way to make a million dollars in the bike industry? Start with two, right? Right. <laughs> right. Um there there's a lot of jokes about it and and um there are a lot of people working in the bike industry who maybe could make more money working in other industries, both in retail, but also engineers and, and marketing people and, and, uh, you know, executives. I think most bike industry people are taking a little bit of a pay hit to, to enjoy working outdoors sometimes and playing with toys sometimes and yeah, maybe getting the sweet hookup. <laughs> the sweet hookup is, is fun. Yes. <laughs> um, now, uh, I, you know, I've jotted down a few questions. I guess, um, you know, what growing from that that early stage of the shop where you just had a few core employees, it was really small and really manageable. What would you say, like, kind of that growth to now having a pretty substantial staff and a larger shop? You know, almost more of an organization that kind of has procedures. 
Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So some of the challenges. It's, in, it's a great question. So I would say going from going from you know th- two to five people. That's that's one style of organization, and then once you go from like that five to ten, it's it's a little different, and you have to have a little more leadership and a little more process and a little more infrastructure, um, more you know more systems, um, and then when you go from, and and then I feel that that's one style of team. And then when you get to maybe fifteen or or twenty people, it's a it's a it's a new leap. Now now you have politics. Okay. Now you have now you have a need for real leadership and real organization. And now you're going to live and die by your process by by the strengths and weaknesses of your processes and and, and your culture. And now it's an organization that has enough mass. And enough um, inertia that no one person can easily change its direction, even myself. You know, where when it's six people, I can get six people on the page about something and we're going in a new direction and here we go. With 25 people, we need to go in a new direction. You know, a month later, I might still be picking up stragglers that are trying to find the new direction. Like, (laughs) right. Yeah. That's. That's a serious, I mean, that sounds like a serious challenge and it's, and you have to build in different structures and, and, and hierarchies within that. Cause it can't just be one boss with 25 direct reports. Right. So managing managers and leading leaders is like the new part of my life in the last five years or so where I've been really trying to focus on that and opening the second store really took that opening. The second store was almost double downing on the decision on that decision. So for many people in positions like mine, there's this kind of, there's these, there are these moments where you have to decide if you're going to continue to live by your own work or if you're going to grow your business to the point where, um, you know, you're no longer do have to fix bikes and sell bikes to make a living. And one of my great weaknesses is I keep going back to fixing. Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's a strength and weakness. I, do, I keep going back to fixing bikes and selling bikes. And I have to constantly remind myself to step back and be a leader and create structure and create organization, which are things I really enjoy doing, but they're not always my habits. Well, and also it's maybe sometimes that's a little bit more disconnected from loving bikes and, and for sure, you know, uh, enjoying the bike culture. It's like, you know, almost have to be a well, little bit focused on business in general. And full disclosure, I think I have aptitude for that. And I, and, and I've been a student of it for a while now and I'm not horrible at it, but my game on fixing and selling bikes is probably significantly higher than my game on leadership, structure, organization, right. Bi- um, and I'll temper that by saying um, we do try to have creative approaches and we try to we try to do things at the path that a lot of businesses wouldn't dare try to do. Like we have way too many SKUs. We'll do way too many different services. Like we way overcomplicate everything. Right. Um, and 
that's just one th- way we we try to we try to kind of have our cake and eat it too over and over and over again in the sense that um it's like oh are we going to have um an organic environment where everyone can shine and and show their brilliance or are we going to have systems and structure so that people don't so that people know what they're supposed to do and can work together and it's like we're going to do both and then I'm sitting here like we're going to do both. That's pretty cool. And like, how are we going to do that? Like, <laughs> like, but that's been the attitude from the beginning is that we're not just going to accept how things are done, and that we're going to try to start over a little bit, yeah, and take fresh eyes to every problem. Can Can you give me an like an example of of that? Um, like some something that another business or another bike shop might do it. XYZ way and and you guys are going to do it a little bit different, you know. Um Yeah, um well, all of our staff knows all of our source all of our sources, all of our costs. It's um there's a lot of uh, there's an almost an overwhelming amount of information available to the staff. Okay. And an over, and and there's a lot of demand for it's not a job where you can just come and go through the motions, even for the cashier who's working after school. You really have to um, follow. You have to be able to think for yourself. You have to be able to follow instructions because like I said, we overcomplicate everything so much. So we have, right. we'll order anything pretty much that exists in the bike world. We stock way more of every of the stuff we, of the type of stuff we sell most people who are my colleagues and contemporaries think we stock too many options and then we'll order you other options. So people come in and they're like, I want this, you know, this thing that we, you know, we've no one else wants and we'll order it for them, you know? And then the, that person who takes their order has to be able to ask the right questions about the size or the tooth count or the color or the compatibility. And it's complicated and it would be a lot easier to just kind of limit our SKUs to like the 300 that sell the best or whatever. And Right. Um, well, well, just as an example, is one of the things probably, I mean, we're getting away from front derailers, but this always surprised me, is within the bike world, when you start to get into options and compatibility on things, like I think X9 front derailers, there's like 32 in the catalog, like 32 different X9 front derailers. It's really disheartening. Yeah. Thank God they're phasing out, right? <laughs> Thank goodness. But kind of some other examples of where we try there's in, in business there are many 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 times where the question is kind of choose the lesser of two evils or choose there's no right answer, there's just trade-offs and it's like pick a direction and go with it and we're always trying to like find a better balance. Right? You know, and make that make make so um, I, you know, and there's all of these opposing forces in the world that we have to balance in our lives and, and at work. And, and a lot of places tend to just come up with an answer that works. And this is the formula and it's like, everyone just has to conform to it. And it's just, this is how it is around here. But we try to, we definitely try to have processes and structure so that everyone's on the same page and no one's lost. But every time we make a process or a structure, there's the question of like, how is this going to limit someone? Right. Because um, we're really focused on 
hey, it's great if it, those processes and those structures, they're there to serve us and to make things work better. And if they become confining, okay, sometimes we're going to concede to that as part of that balance, but how much, how much freedom are we giving up to, to go above and beyond for our customers in order to make, in order to conform to this process? And these are to constant honing of that balance. Right. And I think everybody's had that example before where they, you know, I can think of like, um, you know, certain, certain businesses, I can think of one where I wanted to order a part that they didn't have in stock and you call and be like, Hey, can, can you just order it? No, you have to come in and pay for it. Or, you know, it's like, or can you take the credit card over the phone? Or, you know, that's kind of an example that comes to mind. Or it's just, like, we don't sell that. Yeah, or we don't sell that. Yeah, exactly. Um, or we don't fix that. Yeah. I mean, that's our other kind of, you know, claim to fame slash fatal downfall is that we take all those creaky bikes. So early in the early days, a lot of our new customers were the lost children who had gone to every other bike shop and... Ah, and okay. they were, and they, they, their problem hadn't gotten solved. Right. And some of them, the problem wasn't their bike, but that's another yeah. story. <laughs> yep. But no, we take, we take all the broken off bolts that are rusted in and seized in seat bolt. You know, I was talking to another bike shop owner the other day and we were talking about, we had removed a, a seat post that had been seized into this person's bike. And I think it probably took four hours or something of work. And it's like, well, oh, <laughs> what are you going to build this guy for saving his $400 bike? You know, right. or whatever it is. Or maybe it was a $2,000 bike. So it's like, well, we're not going to bill six. We try to bill 60 bucks an hour, which doesn't, which really isn't enough for our techs to be where I want them to be. Like, I want to. I want to be able to provide a better lifestyle and a, and a more secure future to our techs than we currently do. And 60 bucks an hour isn't getting us there. Right. Um, but like 60 bucks an hour for that job was going to be 240 bucks. Not going to happen. Right. So do you turn that job away? What do you do? Yeah. You know, or bill them $250 and the result is ultimately we got your seat post out. Yeah. Like that's a, You can't yeah. do that. Right. Well, yeah, that would have that would have been a rough pill for that customer to swallow, and it wouldn't have felt like we were helping him out really. So you know, we we charged him a lot less, and and sometimes you just eat it. Yeah. Um, some of those jobs are not as hard as others. Some jobs are harder than others. You know, yeah. Fam- famous quote at the shop when one time one of our better techs had rebuilt this Talus cartridge three times. Each time, it wasn't. It didn't work after he rebuilt it. Right. He called Fox and he asked him, "Like I know we've talked about this procedure before, and I've succeeded at it many times. And just is there something I might be missing?" And the answer that the Fox t- Tech gave him was, "Well, you know, some jobs are harder than others." <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of those famous abu- overused lines at the shop is. Yeah, some jobs are harder than others. <laughs> Thanks, Fox. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, you know, I as the shops progressed, I mean, you know, I think uh if you had to give like a like a 30 second 30 second maybe or 20 second uh elevator pitch or elevator description, how would you describe like the life of a bike shop owner? 
So there's this weird misconception from people that I don't know that well, but know me just well enough that I'm like, the path is like killing it. And I'm just bawling. Like <laughs> I have so much money. I can do anything I want. I can go anywhere I want. Right. Um, Ride your bike whenever you feel like it. Yeah. And there's this whole other contingent of the same people who think the path's about to go out of business. And I can say, thankfully, I guess, thank, well, I, I, can, I can say that neither story is true. <laughs> right. And I can say that a lot of times I feel like one of those two stories is true. <laughs> okay. There's a lot. There's a, lot a little of- bit of feast or famine. There's a little bit of, there's a lot of highs and lows. Um, there's a lot of risk. There are a lot of, there are a lot of moments that feel like they're maybe the end or the bottom or the worst thing that could ever happen. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of riding your bike and meeting great people and, um, putting smiles on people's faces and making great friends and getting to go to great locations. Um, yeah, that was going to be kind of my next question is, you know, what are, you know, everybody I think talks about how tough the bike industry is, but I guess some of those moments that you wouldn't trade for anything, you know, like those moments where you're like, this is, this is great. And it sounds like it's, it's the people, it's the experiences and the rides. I mean, I think of, I think of, um, a night ride, um, coming down from old camp about maybe 2000, 2002 or so some of the core people from the path, you know, and we had gone up to old camp after, after work and, and, uh, hung out and we're coming back down and it's a full moon and the weather's perfect. And, you know, those warm summer nights that are just cool enough to be enjoyable in SoCal brightly lit night, you know, those nights when the Southern California sky almost looks like it is like Peter Pan at Disneyland or something. It's surreal almost. And, you know, and you're, you're having so much fun. I remember, um, I had to stop because I was laughing from having so much fun. I had to just stop and regroup because I was like too happy. Yeah. And, uh, well, and you know, I think one of the cool parts and, you know, I've, I work, you know, close to the bike industry and, um, I've, I've had some friends before that, um, have uh you know in engineering have worked at say medical device companies and it's really easy like working at a medical device company to say hey you know i i help people save save lives and i've kind of thought about that and grappled with that a little bit because i've worked in more you know fun industry and and i guess the one of the things that resonates with me is or it kind of puts me at ease is yes it's really good to work on saving people's lives but i think it's also good to give them the reason of what they want to live for, you know? And I think a lot of people feel that way about riding mountain bikes. And it's like, it really, it's that shining light in their life. It really keeps them together. It's, you know, what they really look forward to at the end of the week. Um, oddly enough, when they do go see a doctor, get injured or get sick, the thing they're most, the answer they want is, when am I healthy enough to go riding again? For sure. And um, Well, so, it's one of those things, it's like, the beauty of the hierarchy of needs is as soon as you meet one, it's like right to the next one. Yeah. So like, Hey, I got, I've got like my heart's pumping and like I have food and water and shelter. It's like, I want recreation and, and other stuff. Like, yep. <laughs> exactly. And, but, but I think to me, the, 
the real sense of pride comes from the community. Yeah. You know, you, Maxwell and Dan Sands and BJ and just all the, you, you, and, and, you know, and Molly and, and John and Missy and just on and on and on all of the people who are part of the local community that, um, they all put a smile on each other's face. They all put a smile on my face. Sometimes I get to put a smile on their faces. Yeah. And from the beginning, the idea of the path was that if we could become kind of like a cornerstone of that, that it would be fun and that, and that it, people would want, want the services that we offer. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, and, and it's the thing that keeps me doing it is, you know, I think, Maxwell is kind of like the the ultimate example. It's like I can't, I can't let Maxwell down. You know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, for the listeners, he's longstanding customer, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Core mountain biker, grungy to the bone, loves adventure rides, and just loves riding his bike. Loves bikes. Loves his friends. Has a path tattoo. Yeah. Just gives gives big old bear hugs to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, every t- I think anybody who's ridden with him is never disappointed. Yeah, that and it really is cool. It, it's fun being a student of something, and you know, mountain biking is such a constantly progressing and evolving thing. Yeah, that there really is always new stuff to learn and explore and play with. You know, like just earlier today, we're we're talking, trying to, I'm, I'm trying to decide what my, what I really think is going to happen with plus size wheels and who's going to want them and who's going to ride them and am I going to like them and all this and, yeah, you know, it's always something new, whether it's a new wheel size or a, a new, br- you know, when I opened the shop, most of the bikes had rim brakes on them, and then yeah. a few years later they all had disc brakes on them, and. uh and then there's the micro nuances of that. Then, then the disc brakes all became hydraulic, and you know, then, then the suspension forks started getting different styles of damper cartridges that were a new learning process. And then we had to learn how to work on dropper posts. And yeah, you know, there's always something new. You can never sit back and just be a mountain bike product expert, right? Um, last year's mountain bike product expert is old school. Yeah. It 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 does evolve quickly. And I like that. I like I like routine and I like that slow build. I like right. that slow building process and that you know the the comfort of routine with the challenge of new things all the time. It's a cool combination. Yeah. Um just as a side note, I think uh for anybody listening or any of the longtime shop customers or anybody in the area just to appreciate actually how hard you work i mean how many days have you almost worked straight recently it's an unusual time because we're in a few different transitions and i think i did work about 30 days straight recently (laughs) didn't go for any bike rides and it hurt it did hurt i was lamenting yeah well just that's just a reminder that you know guys at the shop are working hard tani especially um and uh yeah i think <laughs> well and my family and my dog are really supportive and patient but you can see the pain in their eyes they they all miss you know they it, it's hard on the whole the whole unit yeah 
Well, hopefully uh, things settle out a little bit and you can get out there riding a little bit yeah. more. Yeah. Well, we, we trained three new managers and it's exciting. They're doing well. And uh, um, I'm going to take I'm going to take Sunday off this week almost for sure. So that's that's a vote of confidence in the new managers and yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Cool. Couple other behind the scenes things, and the, and we put a lot of work into remerchandising the Tustin store too, where we we moved all of the soft goods up front and all of the part we flip flopped the whole store basically. So it was it was long overdue, and in doing so, we found lots of fun stuff, you know, old parts that had gone by kind of gone unnoticed that we hadn't cleared out that we should have, and so there's a lot of fun new stuff in the takeoff room and clearance racks and stuff too. Oh, cool. Yeah, anybody in the local area, the takeoff room at the path is always a really fun, almost like a little treasure hunt, because there's all sorts of really sweet parts in there at, at super good prices, too. Yeah, so for the customers who don't know, we have a room basically like maybe the size of a, of a modestly big bedroom that it's all of our clearance items and takeoff parts. So we do a lot of customizations. A lot of, you know, you buy a new bike and we might. We might customize the grips, the fork, the wheels, the tires, the saddle, the seat post, bars, all kinds of stuff gets changed around. And the parts that come off the new bikes go in our takeoff room. And our general formula for pricing them is we Google the item, see what it's going for on the cheapest international mail order place and make it cheaper than that because it's out of the box and it's a takeoff. And that's kind of like how much credit we give for it too. So... So we're talking yeah. good deals. Yeah. And brand new parts never ridden, just taken off. Thus the takeoff. Maybe ridden in the parking lot. Right. But with usually they carry a warranty and uh, usually they are either either actually completely brand new or like showroom new. Right. Yeah, basically display models or something like that. Yeah, you might see like a rotor that has some braking marks on it from being ridden in the parking lot would be like the most used thing. Right, but still not even burned in. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then you might put it on and still have to burnish it in. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah, I, I hope, you know, a lot of the listeners, I think, got a little little bit of a background on, on the start of the shop. Um we're we're in about an hour so far, and one of one of the things uh, we've gotten some feedback in is uh, just to make sure we get to some of the questions. So, do you want to maybe uh, save some more of the past stories for some future episodes, and maybe answer a few questions that we? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we've had quite a few piling up, but uh, we definitely appreciate um, everybody sending us sending emailing us the questions. We we do add them to the list. So should we start with John Anderson or Mr. John? Uh, yeah, that sounds good. Um, John's got a transition patrol for aggressive riding, and he's looking to build a rigid geared 29er. Um, he's thinking he would go either 1x10 or 1x11 with a dropper, a 50-millimeter stem, 750-plus bars, and um, he's thinking maybe a Kona unit. And uh, he's wondering if we, we would recommend the unit or if we have other suggestions for this type of build. It will be, it will be ridden year-round in all conditions, both on and off-road, in snow, and perhaps a bikepacking trip. He rides a modernized, quote-unquote, 1994 Bridgestone MB6 with 
a one by nine clutch derailleur, narrow wide ring, full run housings as his winter and medium duty trail bike. And he enjoys the challenge and feel of a rigid steel platform, but would like more modern geo disc brakes and a dropper for pushing his limits and still getting rigid rowdy on the downhills. Okay. So he's, he's thinking about a Kona unit one by 10, one by 11, uh, yeah. So, I mean, just a one quick thought when he's talking about the drivetrain. Um, it depends where you're starting from with the wheels, but I would say if you can go one by eleven, and particularly if you're, you know, now we've kind of seen this this split in in the rear wheels. So, if you're going to start from scratch, make your decision about SRAM or Shimano. And I'd say there's no reason not to go one by eleven at at this point and get the the bigger range out of the cassette. Oh, if you're starting from scratch, there's, I mean, the price is basically almost the same if, to get XT 1x11 is XT 1x10. Yeah. Or and, if you want to go like GX and, and build up a real, real wheel, that's a XD driver instead of a Shimano driver. So I'm checking right now. I want to say that on the 2016 unit, there's quite a bit more reach than on the 2015 unit. But I'm checking that. Okay. And... And uh, just to clarify, we we tend to like bikes that push a little bit longer, especially if he wants to run a fifty millimeter stem to still get the extension, but the faster the faster steering of a shorter stem, but not be cramped up. When he said he wanted to run a shorter stem, and that really made me think about that reach. Yeah, you want to, and sometimes, like in my case, I'll depending on how much seat post clearance I have on a bike, I'll size up. Say, for example, like my cross-country race bike is an extra large, even though I'm only 5'11", but that's because I didn't. I wanted to run a relatively short stem. And for that bike, I'm running an 80-millimeter stem, which for cross-country racing is relatively short. And so I pick the bike based on reach. So the reach on the medium 2016 unit is like 9 millimeters longer than the reach on the 2015 medium unit. Okay. Um, also of note, what's the seat post size on that guy? Um, oh, for dropper post compatibility. Yeah, yeah. So basically, what we're checking is um, you want to make sure the the seat post size is a thirty point nine or a thirty one point six, so that you can run a drop. Uh, basically, you can have a wide range of dropper posts to pick from. There's a few twenty seven two dropper posts out there, but you'll be limited to four inches of drop and maybe one or two products out there. I think KS makes one and Gravity Dropper makes a, a 27.2 dropper post still. Um, but it's nice to have the bigger size seat post that you can run a dropper post. And, and and John said he wanted to run a dropper post for sure. So I'm still trying to find that seat post size, but um, that's I'm, I'm a little worried that it's a 27.2 okay. on the unit. Yeah, that, would, that might be kind of limiting... Um, you know, and, and going with a, it sounds like he wants to def definitely run it geared. So the unit I think has a good advantage if you uh, at some point want to go single speed because it has the sliding dropouts. However, if you're for sure going to make it a geared bike, I would strongly consider like the Hanzo or I was thinking that, but he's going to run it rigid, right? He is going to run it rigid. I, I was kind of like trying to picture the Hanzo rigid. I think if you got a long enough fork, it would be cool. 
Yeah, so check that axle. You just need to crown. a suspension, a fork that's got an axle crown that's kind of matches that one sagged one twenty fork. Right. Um, yeah, that that would. So watch the axle to crown on the fork if you're going to do that. Um, oh, and just a side note, he said something as a winter, a winter bike, and I'm thinking it's rigid. He's going to get it wet a lot. If you do get a steel bike. Um, try to find a can of the frame saver, and especially if you're going to buy a frame and build it up, treat the inside of the frame uh, with that spray in frame saver stuff, especially if it's steel. And you can also use Boshield T9 or even just like WD-40 in a pinch. You right. just want to get a water displacer coating the inside of that frame. You just spray into all the tubes and kind of let it so, kind of let it move around, like angle the frame in different ways so it gets to all the spots in the frame. Yeah, I've done that on all the steel bikes that I've had, but that would be something you wouldn't necessarily have to do if you got an aluminum bike or a or a tie bike. Um, that's that's kind of a treatment you want to do for a steel bike. So to me, that would be kind of a downside of picking a steel bike for kind of winter missions or. If the bike's gonna get wet and mucky yeah, a lot, as long as you as long as you treat it, and you know, back when we when when there was that rage of really popular steel single speeds for a while, yeah, and a lot of us were like doing a lot of endurance riding on s- steel single speeds. We were pretty regularly doing services on people's bikes where we would take out their bottom brackets and headset cups, regrease the contact points, and put them back in. And the idea is, you know, you leave it in there for a, a few years and it oxidizes and rusts and seizes in there. Right. Okay. Um, so as long as you take care of it and do those sorts of, and I think probably hardcore, hardcore riders in those types of environments probably know that. Hopefully some of their shops are telling them that. Yeah. Um, or even, you know, one of the things I would suggest is if you have a steel frame and let's say you do a really mucky ride, when you get home, take the seat post out and make sure the frame can air out and it kind of gives it, a, if any water got flung up and kind of dripped down the seat post, you can get that to dry out of the frame um, or and wipe out the, the seat tube and and don't let it get, because um, you'll have you'll probably have like an aluminum seat post in a steel frame and you don't want to let that sit in there with water. Right. And then cost might be a driving decision here, driving the decision here a little bit. You get frame and fork on the unit. MSRP is 525. That's a pretty sweet deal. That's you're basically getting a free fork compared to the Hanzo. Yeah. Um, and it's a great frame. It's a good riding frame. And I, I really like that orange black paint fade. Um, so, uh, did you happen? Did you find, get confirmation on the no, seat post? I can't find it. Okay. Right now. That would be something to, to I'm check. Pretty sure it's 27 two. Which isn't a total deal breaker. Like I said, you can run a twenty-seven two dropper post. KS makes one, Gravity Dropper makes one, but you will be limited to four inches of drop. And sometimes those seat posts, at least the KS one and the inventory is spotty. Well, and it's kind of a side note. Who knows what all this guy's thinking? Maybe he heard that Kona was out of steel Hanzo frames because they were. Ah. But we got okay. a few more in. Our rep found us some. So nice. if you do want a steel Hondo frame, we do have them. Sweet. Every size except small. That uh, that would be a that would be a sweet option. Um and a little bit more aggressive geometry, a little bit longer reach, which is going to make it a little bit more comfortable to run that 50 millimeter stem. Um one comment, he said 750 plus bars. 
Go eight hundred. Eight. Get eight hundred bars. No matter what, just buy eight hundred bars. Cut them to fit. Yeah. Full later. disclosure: I'm running seven seventy, seven eighty on on more, most of my bikes. But I agree with Nathan. Start with eight hundred. If you haven't right. already, if you haven't already spent a week or two on eight hundred, try it before you before you cut them down. Right. Seven fifty is almost a little on the narrow side these days. Depending to me, on me, seven fifty feels sketchy narrow almost. Yep. My on on my. Uh, Santa Cruz 5010, I've got 750s, and I'm getting real close to bumping them up. This is my sister's bike. <laughs> next uh, question? Yep, next question. So Edward, Edward's a fairly new rider from the mountainous state of Kansas. <laughs> Currently, <laughs> you know the irony of that statement blew right over me for a second. <laughs> Currently riding a geared karate monkey. He's never been professionally fitted, measured, etc., He's always hearing y'all talk about geometry measurements, y'all being us. How important is getting fitted? So there is a a definite conventional wisdom in the bike industry that road bike fit is the most important thing ever, and mountain bike fit is kind of like, oh, you don't really need that. And I think that that's going to – I think that's a mistake. I think that's wrong. Um, Some of the reasons I think that – are the primary reason is I'm a bike fitter and I'm a pretty I'm I was pretty dialed into my bike before I ever got a bike fit. So like even in my first fit, there weren't a ton of changes made. But the changes that were made made the bike more comfortable and made me feel more powerful. Okay. And to this day, even though I fit other people on their bikes, I like to have someone fit me on my bike. Because a good bike fitter will usually have one little bit of insight about what's going on with me and that particular bike. Um, and I think it's worth it. And, it, and it's, um, it's time well spent. Um, so some of the common things that um, – some of the things uh, – some of the things we've seen get fixed in bike fit are knee pain, hip pain – foot numbness, um, numbness in your private parts, um, hand pain, shoulder pain, neck pain, hand numbness. And then some of the things we've seen improve in bike fit are power, comfort, control. Um, one, I would say a, a good bike fit usually lead, leads to you being a little bit more relaxed on the bike. And all of these examples you've seen in mountain fit. In mountain fit. Yeah. And then, so one of the big arguments is that against the importance of mountain fit is that the mountain position is so dynamic. People talk about, well, on a road bike, you sit there in one spot and you grind it out for hours, which is sort of true. I mean, sometimes you get out of the saddle on a road bike. And when I ride a road bike, sometimes I slide forward in the saddle a little bit on steep climbs or back, not as much as I do on a mountain bike. Granted. But I think the counterpoint to that is that if you're going if if you're going to be sliding way forward and way aft of neutral, then all the more important that neutral's dialed. Right. Because if if you're going to be if you start out an inch in front of neutral and then you slide three inches forward on the saddle, now you're four inches in front of neutral. Where that road bike was never going to get four inches in front of neutral. So from that perspective, I think that that's a really 
that's something I've seen and something I believe. Um, also, you know, with mountain, there's a lot of talk of like, yeah, but mountain fit is a balance with, with handling. So like you, with a road bike, you more or less put the rider in the position that they're most powerful in and, and that they're going to be able to generate watts comfortably because contrary to old fit belief, comfort usually equals power. It used to be a, a common old school fit belief is that you have to be uncomfortable to be powerful or that your bars have to be six inches below your saddle to be fast or something like that, stuff like that. The new school of fit is that even at the highest levels, um, if, for example, you're exceeding your own limitations of flexibility, then it's not faster. It's more fast. It's faster to be more comfortable. In other words, some people might have a little bit more upright riding position to accommodate different flexibility limitations, and they might actually be faster in that more upright riding position. Even though all other things being equal, most people will be faster in a less upright riding position. Right. It's it's specific to the person, but if you're if you're uncomfortable, it's you're you're not going to want to be in that position for long. You're going to be squirming, kind of fighting out of that position. Or sometimes it's not even that uncomfortable. A really co- a really classic example is as you come across the top of your pedal stroke, there's a pretty extreme hip flexion. So your hips flex. Um, in other words, the angle from your knee to to your arm, you know, the angle that your hips make closes. And if you grasp, if you cradle your knee and pull it up towards your chest and stretch, it just feels good. It's not uncomfortable. Okay. But if it, but many, 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 I would almost go out on a limb and say like most people who are serious cyclists who haven't been fitted are a little bit past their range of flexibility. And if they, if they raise their bars just a little bit, they go right more right up to their range of flexibility. And it's not that it's not that it's super uncomfortable. In, in fact, it's like I said, it kind of feels good to stretch that. It doesn't hurt. But every single pedal stroke, your muscles are pushing past your own flexibility range. It's extremely right. inefficient. And it creates it, you know, if you do if you do it all day, yeah, it can create lower back tension. It can create tension in other parts of the body. So but but more to the point you're literally fighting your body to turn the pedals. And if you get out of your own way, it's more efficient. Right. So that, that's an example of someone, let's say there's two people, same dimensions. They're going to have different bike setups based on their, their maybe differences in flexibility. And I would go, I would say that the key areas of flexibility, there are hamstrings and hip hamstrings and hip flexibility. And absolutely. Someone who someone who can easily touch their chi- their knee to their chest and can easily put their palms on their floor likely is going to be efficient with quite a bit lower saddle than someone who can't. Uh, low, it's lower saddle. Or, or I'm sorry, lower, lower bars. bars. Correct, lower right. bars. Thanks for catching that. And and so I mean, traditionally we see like pro racers or super aggressive racers with very the bars are pretty far out. They're pretty low. They're very leaned over in in a attack aggressive position whereas more com you know like a beach cruiser is much more upright so there's those kind are of extreme range. examples yeah right but it, going back to that balance between f- handling and fit so let's say for example that um i know that my best possible pedaling position is with say just for throwing numbers out there say a 17 inch re- reach with a 50 millimeter stem or a 70 millimeter stem, say 17 inches with a 70 millimeter stem that, and that's where I'm going to make the best power. But I like how the bike handles 
with a 50 millimeter stem. Well, I feel like I'm better able to make an informed decision about how to navigate those trade-offs if I know what optimal is for both. Right. So just because I'm not going to do, just because I may not go for my ultimate optimal horsepower riding position for my enduro mountain bike, doesn't mean I don't want to know what it is. Right. I want to see how close I can get to it and still have the bike handle how I want it to handle. That makes sense. And having, I would say beyond that, having that information is going to be really, might give you a good piece of information to look for your next bike, which we always are, right? Well, here's an analogy for why mountain bike fit might be even more important than road bike fit. If you really, really know grammar, you can break the rules of grammar successfully and without looking stupid. That makes sense. In mountain bike fit, we want to break the rules of fit in order to accomplish other the, the standard rules of fit, which are mostly built around aerodynamics and horsepower. We want to break those rules for handling reasons. Right. So my, my thought is before you break rules, you better know them. That makes sense. That, that makes a lot of sense. So that, that's, a, that's kind of one of my favorite analogies for why mountain bike fit is just as important as road bike fit, where road bike fit is you follow the rules of grammar Mountain bike fit is where you start to act. You start your starting point is the rules, and now you're breaking them for effective for effective reasons. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a prime example of like say what I was talking about earlier of sizing up in a frame is once you kind of know where your fit is and where you want to be, and let's say you break the rules and you say, "Hey, I should be running an 80 millimeter stem, but I hate how that handles. It feels silly. I'm going to run a 50." But then maybe the next time, the next bike you get next year or the year after that, you realize like, oh, hey, I need to find a bike that's really long because I really want this 50 millimeter stem. And I'd be giving out, I'd get the handling plus the better powerful position if this bike was, you know, 40 millimeters longer. Definitely. And, and, but, but it's not just that. It's like, okay, I know I'm going to like how this bike handles best with say, say a 50 mil stem. And I know I'm going to like how it pedals best with, say, an 80. Arriving, that might help me arrive really confidently at, say, a 60. Or wherever right. I want to land in that. It, and But even more than that, with a good fitter, a, a really good fitter might help me make sure I'm, leaning, I'm getting enough reach to fire my glutes. So, so on your road bike fit, you're probably going to get set up to where, you, you know, I, our listeners, some of them might not know, but you need to close your hip angle to fire your glutes. You can't fire your glutes while your hips are like straight up from your thighs. Like if you're, if your torso is parallel to your thighs, you can't fire your glutes. You need to be bent at the waist to fire your glutes effectively. So if that's one of the reasons why a, the, the cycling position is what it is, where the rider is leaned over, bent at the waist, it's in order to, it's in order to get those glutes firing, which are a huge power source. It's a really powerful muscle. So that really upright beach cruiser position, you're pedaling with basically mostly with your thighs. And it's just, it's not as powerful as if you can get your glutes involved. So if, if as a fitter, I can help someone find a stem short enough that they like how the bike handles, but long enough to where they fire their glutes, now I've really helped them. And that's a fine balance you're not going to have to play in road bike fit. Right. Because with road bike fit, it's just 
put it where it needs to be. All road bikes fits bend you over enough to fire your glutes pretty much. Like, yeah. Unless you do funny stuff to them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I th- I think you make you make a lot of really good points because I, you know, I kind of think a little bit that, or have thought a little bit that, uh, you know, kind of common practice that, oh yeah, mountain bike fits, just handling, just do whatever feels right. It's so dynamic. But you bring up some really good points that it's, it is really dynamic. It is it is a big challenge, but I I think your your example about grammar is exactly on point. Like you well, got to know the compromises you're making. This is one of those places where we tried to find a balance at the path that oh, I don't think there are any shops that are going to talk to you about all of the suspension and bike handling dynamics that we're going to talk to you about the path and measure your knee knee angle and your knee over pedal and put an adjustable stem on there and maybe even help you with your leg leg length discrepancy with wedges and shims and cleat position. And I mean, most shops are going to be good at some of those things and we really try to be good at all of them. Right. Well, and the fun part about bike position too, is all of a sudden you have to get the suspension sag correct. Where's a road bike? (laughs) Not an issue. Absolutely. And that's part that's a really good point. And it, that's part of why mountain bike fit is important on each bike. Because if, you know, I'll take the numbers from one bike and put them on a different bike. But if, if the fork or rear suspension is sagging differently on those bikes, right. Then it, it plays out differently. Or even if the head angle is different, I can like, it measures the same until you measure something that's different. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and like an example, I know I personally, my suspension preferences because of the trails that I like to ride, I run a fairly stiff fork and I run it really high in the stroke. I don't run a lot of sag on the on the fork, but I run the rear typically more sagged than a lot of other riders. So once again, let's say I had a twin, same same dimension, same bike, same everything, but then I like my bike sagging more rear favored versus a more neutral sag bike, saddle position, bar position is going to be different there too. Absolutely. 100%. So mountain bikes are super dynamic. So um I guess direct answer to Andy if you can afford it and you have a good fitter in your area um try to seek one out even if it's it's uh, Let's talk about some ways to qualify a good fitter because this okay. is I think this is a hard thing to navigate. Yep. Um I would look for uh, my so there are a lot of great fit, fit systems out there and someone might have like laser beams and video cameras and all that stuff and that's fine. I would look for a fitter that's going to put that's that is going to measure your knee angle e- either with something with either with lasers and something fancy or just with a gyneometer, gyneometer and they're going to measure your knee over pedal with a plumb bob or with lasers. <laughs> and I would look for a fitter that you know, most good fitters, in my opinion, are going to are going to have a starting point of thirty degrees on your knee angle, and they're going to want to put your knee more or less directly over your pedal spindle if you measure off the end of your femur, or over the end of your pedal arm if you measure off the end of your kneecap. And if the fitter says that's what they're going to do, they're probably a pretty good bike fitter. I would look for a fitter that is open to working with I would look for a fitter who views their job as helping you make a well-informed decision as opposed to a fitter who views their job as putting you in a position that they believe in. I think that's yeah. important. I think probably the number one way in which fitters let people down is by 
not asking enough questions and not not helping people make informed decisions, but rather telling people what they should do. So do you do you think it's important to find a fitter that's familiar in the discipline that you play? Like kind of. Okay. Um I think it helps, particularly if you're very specialized. Although I think if you find someone who can put your knee angle at 30 degrees and then ask you if that feels good and adjust from there and then put your knee over pedal with a plumb bob where it belongs and then ask you if that feels good and then adjust from there and then put an adjustable stem on your bike and try different stem positions and give you feedback about what they're seeing while you're using those positions and let you pick a stem that feels comfortable for you that you, that you show a good display, a good position with, you're probably going to be pretty happy even if, they don't know your discipline because those okay. are all real fundamental basic things that are pretty cross discipline too. I mean, I run my road saddle in the same exact position as my mountain saddles. And if you have a tri bike, that'd be a little different, but for the most part, like saddle position isn't, isn't very dis for pedaling position. Saddle position is not very discipline specific, but maybe in a case like that, let's say someone isn't as familiar as um, familiar with, say mountain bike um fit i would say maybe if you're gonna go fit with that person make sure your mountain bike is set up suspension wise where you want it definitely yeah 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 a good fitter is gonna make sure your suspension set up how you want it before they proceed but if they're not if they know nothing about mountain you might need to help them right but uh, yeah it would be good it would i think it would be smart to find a fitter who rides the style of riding that you do or at least has a good understanding of it. Yeah. I mean, but that being said, I do fits on endurance road guys all day and I'm pretty proud of the work I do and I'm not really an endurance road guy. I never really have been, you know what right. I mean? Like, so it is, but, but I am a student of an endurance road. So there's that. That makes sense. So I guess they have to be a student of, of what you're, what you're doing. Yeah. Um, should we move on to the next question? Sure. Um, Alan wants to know what advantage, what advantages does a high roller two have over a minion? He's considered a, a, a high roller two, but then looking at specs, can't figure out why one would run it over minions front or rear. He's asking because, um, I said I run high roller two sometimes. And so the first question, question that your question brings up alan is are we talking minion dhr or dhf and i'm just going to kind of assume you mean dhr i don't even know why well i would say the dhr looking at the tread pattern is much more comparable to a to a high roller it's closer yeah um to me the minion dhr is the tire you go to if you want a little bit of weight savings and a little bit of faster rolling compared to a high roller two, and you're willing to give up some cornering bite. Okay. So the weight difference between those two tires and a two, three, five EXO casing is about 50 grams at what, you know, they're, if they're both 27 and a half EXO. Now there's a, there's a nuance to the high roller two and correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a two, three high roller two and a two, four high roller. Oh, two. you're right. Maybe I'm comparing two, three to, yeah. If they're both two three. If they're both two three. Now the two the the two three high roller two is I would agree with Tony, it's a fairly rounded profile. It does have good braking knobs similar to the the minion uh DHR, but the cornering knobs may be a little bit more aggressive on the minion than the high roller. 
Except now that if you go to that two four high roller two, the the big difference to me is the casing's a, a hair bigger, but the cornering knobs much more aggressive. On the two four, on the so two four I'm high roller the two three high roller twos, mm-hmm. and I feel I have those on one bike right now, and I have minion DHRs on two three minion DHRs on another bike, front and rear, both front and rear. Okay. Both bikes I have the same tires front and rear right now, which is kind of unusual for me. Um, more a more normal move for me would be to run the minion on the back and the high roller on the front. Okay. Um, I definitely feel like the high rollers roll noticeably, fa- or I'm sorry, the minion DHR rolls noticeably faster. Like I can feel it. Okay. Um, but I def, I also feel like the two, three high roller compared to the two, three minion bites in harder and, and tracks better just in general. Okay. And, uh, I think the high roller has bigger side knobs. Maybe we can go look in the garage after the show. Yeah. Well, I personally like, I'm a fan of the high roller two, four, cause I think it has aggressive side knobs. Um, and that tire does have bigger knobs than the two, three. It's not just a bigger casing. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think it's bigger knobs it and, did, a, it and a bigger casing. There was some issue where the two, four but size was, to size. Like yeah. I've, I've also run, um, minions on a downhill bike and high rollers on a downhill bike. So yeah. I've had the same general feeling running two five minions and two five high rollers and you know yeah. what I mean? Like so uh so just we, we talked a little bit about it. Just just so we clarify if there's any confusion. So minion, so two three to two three, minion DHR, high roller two. Which one corners better? To me, the high roller has more traction in corners. More traction in corners. And it's heavier and rolls slower, which those trade-offs, I mean, if it's heavier and rolls slower, it better have more traction somewhere. <laughs> right. So the and then so you would you would pick the high roller two, maybe more trail bike application, or maybe a less aggressive application. I'm sorry, you would pick the minion. I really like the high roller as a front tire, and I really like the minion DHR as a rear. Okay. For for like um like midweight trail like light enduro. Heavy right. light enduro, heavy trail, yeah, like or middle trail, depending on your pers- perspective. Okay. And and then I'm running the and then I'm running the DHR front and rear, and I don't think it's a bad front, and it helps keep my fifty ten light, and it, like my fifty ten right now is my go to for like trying to hang on climbs. So yeah, that fifty grams matters. Yeah, of rotating weight. Since we're talking about tires right now, I just wanted to throw in one more thing that I'm kind of trying out this summer as the California trails are really dry and loose and dusty is rear tire. This is more of a compound question or compound issue is basically I am running the softest rear tires I can run to maintain braking traction in loose, hard packed terrain around here right now. And it seems to be working well. Like I'm running the three C DHR on my, uh, on my 5010 and I made sure I was running the, the softer compound one. And I think I'm going to continue to do that this summer. So and it's as, working as advertised. Yes. And as, as you, uh, as you pointed out, I will be going through a lot of tires that way because <laughs> running the soft tire in the rear is, is not one for longevity, but, um, there's been a couple of times early this season on loose trails where I've, you know, checked up on the rear brake and the bikes come around way more than I wanted to on a steep trail. And so I'm, really really seeking out good braking traction 
for uh, steep, loose, dry trails. I really like my rear tire to dr- to be. I think I like my rear tire to have a little less traction than my front tire. I like okay. it to give first. That makes sense. Now I'm I'm thinking really steep trails and like breaking survival and yeah. that kind of stuff. So it's it's kind of a unique case, but um, I've been really into rear braking breaking traction power lately for some reason. Good stuff. Breaking traction on the rear tire. Yeah. I've never I've never it's always been low on my list of priorities for tires is rear braking traction. It's it's kind of the uh, maybe in the last last year or so that's become a priority for me. And f- so for example on one of my trail bikes or when I was running a a shorter travel 29er kind of set up as a trail bike, I was running a Maxxis Icon in the rear and I just couldn't run it anymore. It didn't have the braking power that I wanted. And I'd ride down a steep trail and the thing would just come around on me. Hmm. And so I eventually put, I think, a knobby nick on the rear so it would bite in more and just get some more braking power out of it. Now, granted, a little more rolling resistance. You know, when you're cruising on flat ground, you feel a little bit more resistance. But I really wanted that braking power. Man, I could get never get along with the old knobby nick, but I really kind of like the new one. Schwalbe's making good tires across the board, and, and hopefully by the next show I'll try it out those uh, Rocket Rons for cross-country racing. And and uh, I'm... I'm hoping for good things. Should we do Amanda's question? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'd say let's let's do that one and then uh, maybe call a show. So we have at least two female listeners. Sweet. Um, Amanda's a new female mountain biker, and she has an old Mongoose Wing Comp 26, and she's looking to upgrade to a to a real bike. <laughs> um, she wants a bike that'll last and make riding even more fun and build her confidence. She's looking at a Giant Stance 1 and a Santa Cruz Superlight. She lives in Baltimore, Maryland, and she rides trails that are flowy, a little rocky, and have tons of roots. She wants to know what we think about the Stance 1 and the Santa Cruz Superlight. And she points out that we talk a lot about the high-end Santa Cruz bikes, but they're out of her price range, so what about the single pivots? And uh, I would... The Superlight is a really cool bike, and the technology of that single pivot, it's pretty low-tech, it's high. It's low-maintenance, and you can kind of ride it and ride it. Um, now, are we assuming that the... Is the Superlight still available, or is she... Because I thought Santa Cruz... That's kind a of, complex question. Okay. <laughs> um, the stance, you're going to get probably more parts for your money. Right. Um, and if you can make it to SoCal, we have killer deals on stance ones right now. Like it'll blow your, like hundreds and hundreds of dollars off. Um, that's a tough one. The, one of the things that about the stance one is that it's only a couple hundred dollars less than the trance three. And the trance three is head and shoulders a better frame than the stance or the super light. Because it's got a real, it's got a, a a multi-link suspension as opposed to a, both those other two bikes are different forms of single pivot, right? Um, and the Trance is just an elite level bike, and it's more on the level of like an more on the level of like an aluminum fifty ten or Bronson in my estimation, and less on the level of the Superlight. Where the Stance, uh, 
you maybe could make an argument that the super light's a nicer frame than the stance, but but the stance is probably going to be lighter in that price point and have nicer parts. Yeah, one thing I've noticed is that the uh, the Santa Cruz aluminum frames, and I don't know if it was just me, and I don't have numbers to support this, always felt a little heavy in class. And I think Giant still pushed the limits of making high-quality aluminum bikes, whereas Santa Cruz has put all their effort into carbon, and their aluminum bikes at least like tube choices and hydroforming and trying to get the aluminum lighter, they not so much. There's also the question of the value proposition where Santa Cruz, if you're looking at, you know, a $6,000 carbon bike and you start comparing all the different, the specs and the weights and everything, that $6,000 Santa Cruz is right there. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not like, Oh man, you could get this bike at the same price has so much nicer parts. But, at fifteen hundred bucks, Santa Cruz really has a hard time competing with a company like Giant to put a good spec on the bike. Right, and, and at twenty five hundred bucks, and at thirty five hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I mean, my kind of general rule of thumb is that um, lower cost aluminum bikes, you get killer deals from Giant. Like what the bang for the buck is always really really strong. Well, and Giant is kind of quietly allowing. And helping some dealers do some really good deals on stances and trances right now. So find a strong giant dealer who has a good relationship with giant and ask them what they can do for you on a, ask them about a trance three. Cause you might be able to score a trance three for more or less what you're thinking you're going to pay for that stance one and really get into a different class of frame. Yeah. When we were, when we were doing our 2016 pre-book buy from giant, we didn't, we really didn't order any stance ones. We ordered we we ordered and did really well with stance twos, which is the same frame with more budget parts, the lower price, and we do really well with trance threes. But Brian and I felt that um, the customer who could spend, you know, high teens, almost two thousand dollars on a stance one, could afford this trance three, which has an MSRP of twenty one hundred, and we're doing some promotional pricing on those right now in the, like the mid teens. Like crazy, maybe yeah. fly out to SoCal, <laughs> ride with Megan and Kim, have a great have a great SoCal adventure. Uh, let's see. Just wanted to make sure we hit. Uh, um, yeah, I think I think we kind of hit hit the high points. You know, flowy, rocky, tons of roots. I mean. Sounds like some good mountain bike trails. I don't think there's anything specific that we could say like, oh, hey, this bike's going to be better suited for roots. Or, um, I think just in general, a good bike's a good bike, especially if, uh, you know, rocky and lots of small bumps, The that giant maestro suspension, especially, I mean, one of my big favorite little nuances is the upper shock mount has, um, has a bearing in it. And so uh, a lot of shocks, it goes with the bushing on the shock out eyelet. Anyway, the the end result is this: the giant maestro suspension tends to be really, really sensitive, which is so, sweet. Yeah, what Nathan's talking about is that the where the shocks mount to the frame on any bike, they have to pivot in those mounts for the suspension to move. And on most bikes, there's something called on most bikes is there's eyelets that are basically pressed into a bushing that rotate, and those have to. It's pretty tight. It's it's not a loose, easy movement. And it does inhibit the suspension motion a tiny bit, and they do wear out and cause play. 
And that that is a great thing that Giant did with the bearings on the upper shock, shock mount. Yeah, because that upper mount pivots a fair amount. Like the lower one pivots just a couple of degrees, but the top one pivots a lot. Correct. And But Amanda, you're going to have to upgrade to the Trans 3 to get that. <laughs> Go for the Trans 3. <laughs> it's black too. Color black. Look good. <laughs> nice. Well, all right. Well, uh, we hope all our listeners enjoyed that show and got a little bit of background on the shop um, and a little bit more of the just the general story of how bike shops are run and how bike shops get started. Well, I got to say, too, I mean, there are so, so many stories, the camaraderie over the years and the and, and the, the the adversity and the celebrations and the overcoming. I, I can't I mean, I'm sure we'll touch on it more in future podcasts, but um, it is a menagerie of experience. <laughs> uh, yeah, we hope to share that more with you as uh, episodes progress and and we'll uh, keep keep watching for the shows. Um, you know, our regular routine is we try to generally do this show about uh, every other week. Um, fill you in on what we're up to, what we're racing, what we're riding, what we're trying, what's new at the shop, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, everybody keep listening. We really appreciate it. Keep listening to the other shows on Mountain Bike Radio. We really do. And I like it when people come in the shop and tell me they've been listening in the podcast and, and, and they tell me what they like or what they didn't like. So don't hesitate to come, come introduce yourself and, and uh, tell me what you like and what you didn't like about the podcast. Yeah. Um. Remember to send us a questions. Uh, send us questions at sales at thepathbikeshop.com. Participate in the hashtag the path podcast on Instagram. And uh, with that, we uh, bid you good evening. Happy trails. And we were bound to the city light, flashlights when we fall into the